Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome to another episode of Superhumanize, where we delve deep into the human psyche and explore ways to elevate our lives. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Diana Hill, a renowned psychologist and a beacon of insight in the realms of acceptance, compassion, and psychological flexibility. Dr. Hill, with her profound expertise in acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness, offers a unique perspective on navigating the complexities of our inner worlds. In our conversation, Dr. Hill demystifies common misconceptions about emotions, shares valuable lessons from her clients, and provides an expert take on the state of mental health care in the United States. We dive into the concept of emotional agility, exploring its pivotal role in personal growth and well-being, and discuss the often overlooked importance of vulnerability and curiosity in our personal development. Dr. Hill shares practical advice on managing intense emotions, cultivating self-compassion, and the transformative power of mindfulness. I found her take on anxiety, depression, and aligning actions with values particularly enlightening. Dr. Hill's insights are not only thought-provoking, but also steeped with a sense of hope and direction for anyone seeking to find purpose, build resilience, and nurture meaningful relationships. Join us as we go on a journey of self-discovery, emotional resilience, and the pursuit of a fulfilling life. I promise this episode is not only informative, but transformative for the value. James, let's do this last sentence. One more take. Sorry, I messed up. Join us as we go on a journey of self-discovery, emotional resilience, and the pursuit of a fulfilling life. I promise this episode is not only informative, but transformative for the way you view yourself and the world around you. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Diana, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I'm really glad you made time for us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Something when I looked into your work and what you are an expert for, it really resonated with me because you deal with helping people. So many of us, we have unhelpful thoughts. We have these emotions that we just can't stand feeling. And then I can speak from my own experience. Then we have uh, habits or practices that are not really helpful just to suppress these emotions and having to deal with them, uh, the getting stuck in certain loops where we just keep doing things even though we know that they're not really to our benefit. And in your practice and what you put forth, your workshops as well, you actually teach people especially to have self-compassion and you work with something that is called acceptance and commitment therapy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Sure. You describe the problem so well that we can get caught up in our minds. We can get caught up in our feelings, trying to make bad feelings go away and end up being in places in our lives that aren't really aligned to the type of person that we want to be. And ACT is a approach to all of those challenges of being human that has a really strong evidence base. They've been researching this concept of psychological flexibility for over 40 years. Now there's over a thousand randomized controlled trials looking at how do we become more flexible with our thoughts? So if, if a thought comes into our mind, so even as you and I are talking and as the listeners are listening, there's just thoughts happening. Some of those thoughts may be helpful. Some of those thoughts may be really distracting. Some of those thoughts may be self-critical. And ACT helps you diffuse from those thoughts so that you can choose which ones you want to listen to rather than just blindly following them. ACT also helps you be able to open up and be with uncomfortable emotions. And psychological flexibility is not getting rid of the uncomfortable stuff. It's actually being able to move in your life with the discomfort because oftentimes what's most uncomfortable to you is also the thing that is most linked to what you care about. If you have kids, if you've pursued a, a challenging career, if you are an athlete, you know this. It's not avoid discomfort. It's actually how to move with it flexibly. And then finally, ACT is also about getting present, being in the here and now of your life as it is, because as we know, being here and now, there's no other place but now. So it teaches some practices around that. And they all kind of fall under these sort of six core processes of psychological flexibility that we can talk a bit about. Yes, I would love that, Diana. Thank you for giving us a overview on what ACT is. And something that I'm sure is a lot on a lot of people's minds who are listening to us right now is psychological flexibility makes a lot of sense, the concept and working on that. However, what are what have you as a therapist seen in your career? What are some of the most common obstacles to psychological flexibility and how can people overcome them? One obstacle to psychological flexibility is the belief that we're supposed to feel good and feel happy all the time. And that is certainly something that's told to us through the media. We're sold stuff to make us feel happier and feel good. And we have this belief that if we're not happy, then maybe there's something wrong with this. And psychological flexibility isn't necessarily, the goal of it isn't necessarily to make you feel better. Goal mm -hmm. of it isn't necessarily to make you, quote, happier or to only have good feelings and get rid of the bad ones. It's about you being able to feel better, to get better at feeling, to get better with your feelings so that when those difficult feelings show up, you can do a better job with them. And that's what Stephen Hayes, the founder of ACT, often says is it's not about feeling better, it's about getting better at feeling. So that's one core premise is that if we're thinking that we're supposed to always be happy, like the other happy people that we see, that is going to lead you down some traps because actually the challenging things of life, the, the painful spots often are the places that um, have a sense of meaning, where we have a sense of purpose, where we um, maybe learn about ourselves from our difficult emotions. Another thing that I think folks get tripped up on with ACT or in, in my practice is that sometimes people don't know what their values are. They've mm -hmm. been told what they should value or they mistake values from morals or shoulds. And ACT is really about you figuring out for you 
what's important to you, what type of person you want to be in your relationship, what type of person do you want to be at work? And that's unique and individual to you. And some people don't really have a, a clear sense of that. So they don't really know where to point their, their direction. So that can also be a challenge for folks. That's really fascinating, Diana. Could you give us an example of maybe a case you experienced or maybe just even something that comes to your mind? So what would be the difference in morals and the shoulds, what people think they should be doing versus the actual values? I can give you just my personal experience because ACT has actually helped me a lot in my own life, in my own decision-making around schooling and career and all of that. I was pre-medical um, student in college. And at the time, I was pursuing a lot of the pursuing to be a psychiatrist. And I was doing that because I thought that I should. I had messaging from society. This is the, the degree that will give you some kind of status. It's lauded by all sorts. It has a prestige associated with it. And I also knew in my heart that it wasn't really what I wanted for myself. Like I actually liked talking to people more than diagnosing people. And sometimes values come from feeling that discrepancy where inside you feel like, oh, this isn't, there's something that's not matching right now. And it requires some degree of attunement of noticing mm, when I'm in this space, it doesn't quite feel like the right fit for me. What would feel like a right fit? And sometimes knowing, discovering your values is because it comes from having a sense of vitality when you're engaging in something. So I knew I, when I was in uh, college, I would volunteer in the psych unit. I was the person that would always want to go and talk to, to people and hear about their problems. And there was a sense of vitality. This is a right, this is the right fit for me. So getting to know your values is an inner job. And I'll tell people there's usually two ways to get to know them. One is what are your pain points? Because what's most painful to you points to what's most important to you. And the second way is what brings you the most vitality. And what brings you the most vitality is also pointing to what's most important to you. And that is going to be different for every single person. Only you really know. It requires some degree of turning your eyes in and attuning. A lot of us have our eyes turned out all the time. We're looking for what other people think, what other people want from us. It, it makes sense. We've evolved to be part of groups and to belong to groups. So we don't want to stand out or be different. And that can trip us up because oftentimes your values will require you to stand out or be different in some way. Beautiful. Thank you, Diana, for explaining this and emphasizing that. And what you just said, yes, we evolved to be very attuned to cues from the outside, from the group, because being able to pick up on those and act in, in a way that would be coherent with the what the entire group desires or in a hierarchy, the higher ups in the group would actually support our survival, which, which was based on staying within the group and being accepted by the group. So nowadays, of course, we have so many more options. We're not just bound to one tribe. And if we're expelled, there we are alone in a desert fending for our survival. We can actually find our tribe today. And our tribe will find us when they sense that we live a life of purpose that's based on our values. Um, of course, all of that is intricately tied to emotions. And um, what you said before, resonates so much. It's not about feeling better. It's about learning how to better feel and feel everything 
And human emotions are complex. And I'm curious, in your work as a psychologist, what are some of the misconceptions about human emotions that you've encountered? And when you encountered them, how did you address them? One of the common things that I'll hear is that people say, it's just going to kill me this panic attack or this anxiety. I need to get rid of it. I need to avoid it. I can't go to the event because I have so much social anxiety. We really we really do feel like when we're having an emotional experience that in some way it's harmful to us. And oftentimes what I'll say to clients is it's a really crazy, gnarly thunderstorm. And no matter how bad it gets, it's not going to harm this guy. So it's important first for us just to bust that myth that emotions are actually harmful to us, but rather we need to learn how to be with them, recognize that all emotions come and go, and that we actually do things that make them stick around longer, (laughs) trying to suppress our emotions, not think about something. We've all had that experience of going through a breakup and we do everything we can to try and drive through like another part of town so that we don't see the car of our ex or don't go down the same street that we went down on that first date. And then all of a sudden we're just evoking those emotions because we're trying to avoid them so much, right? So one one aspect is that when the more that you try and suppress emotion, we know this from research, the stronger it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. The other myth that we have um, about emotions is that they're always true. If I feel this, it might be true, right? And that is not always the case. Our emotions can harbor important information, but we can be the observer of that emotion and look at the context in which it's arising in, because there may be other factors that are contributing to If I feel irritable and angry, then I must be right. I also may be feeling irritable and angry because I didn't have enough to eat or because I didn't sleep well last night and I'm stuck in a story about this person. So we also have to be able to look at our emotions from enough distance to be able to observe them and then glean information from them, but they're not true with a capital T. They're not going to harm you. They're not always true. And they are part of the human experience. All of us are going to feel sad sometimes, angry sometimes, irritable sometimes, bored sometimes, anxious sometimes. We don't always show it on the outside, but just there's a diversity of human skin colors and hair colors and nose sizes We all have a diversity of emotions within our body as well. And so many of us have been taught from when we were very small and didn't have the emotional or intellectual capacity to actually fend for ourselves or defend ourselves. We've been taught that to not be with and certainly not express certain emotions that were called negative as in, oh, don't cry or getting sent to your room when you were angry, only being allowed to come out when you were behaving in a more socially acceptable to the family circumstances way. Uh, So a lot of us have a hard time really being with our emotions. So when we are stuck in or set in our ways where we're actually don't even know how to bring up emotions that are boiling underneath the surface. What are some good practices to start not just acknowledging, but bringing force and sitting with these uh, emotions that may have been labeled as negative and we thought we had to suppress? One thing we know from research is just the act of giving an emotion a name 
mm-hmm. helps you with regulating an emotion. And actually, it doesn't even have to be accurate. Mm-hmm. I was recently in a conversation with Stephen Hazen. He was saying, yeah, when I go on bef- uh, um, before a talk, I just call it butterflying. My stomach is butterflying right now because maybe I can't even identify this. Is, is this anxiety or is this excitement? And so giving your emotion a name, I being able to first locate it somewhere in your body. Are you feeling something? Where is it? Is it up here in your throat? Is it lower in your um, stomach? If you were to take a Sharpie and outline it with a pen, what would its outline look like? Is it more intense in certain spots? Is it moving? Does it have a weight to it? So first is observing it. And then if you, and then if you can get to the next step of giving it a name, oh, I'm going to, this is anxiety or this is anger or this is irritability. That can really help because what you are doing is recognizing that you are not your feeling. You are having a feeling. You're having an experience, just like you are not your thoughts. You, you have thoughts that come and go in your brain. That can be the first start for the beginning for people. And for some people, that that is like a real stretch to even just go into their body and find something. They may feel numb. You may have had, like you described, early experiences that in order to survive your early experience, you had to cut this off. I worked with eating disorders prior to, I was in a, I was, I ran a treatment center for eating disorders. And for a lot of the individuals that I'd worked with, they would feel that way, not only with their emotions that have alexithymia, they would also have that with their physical hunger and fullness. They didn't even know if they were hungry or full yet. So how do we get there? How do we begin that process? We start by just checking in and tuning in a whole lot, like a, on a regular basis, checking in what's going on inside of here and can I name it? And that can be a, a great way to begin for folks. That sounds like a really great tool, Diana. And let's take, I would like to talk about cases that are more on the extreme side. Let's say somebody has been living with very heavy feeling emotions, depression for a long time in their life. They've not ever sought help before yet, neither in their circle of friends or family nor professional help. And they also at the same time have really hard stuff that they need to deal with. It could be a job loss. It could be losing a loved one, whatever life can throw at us at any given moment. So somebody who for a very long time has been stuck in these loops of uh, certain thought patterns and sees no way out, feels like they're at rock bottom, where could they start with the emotional and mental healing, which of course will also have an effect on physical healing and which will have an effect on their outlook on life. When we're stuck in negativity, we don't even see possibilities because our brain only recognizes more potential threats and zeroes in on those instead of being open for possibilities. So somebody who is in that state, what could be helpful for them, not only the long term, but give them a little bit of hope in that very hard situation that they're in right now? Is there something else on top of or aside of the practice you've just described, Diana? Yeah. For that client, which I've I've worked with many versions of that client. And first you can just feel the heaviness of it and the challenge of it. And that it's that you're at, you're at the bottom of a hole and you have to somehow find your way out of this thing. The trap that I think actually keeps people in that hole is the belief that I need to start feeling better before I can do something that is behaviorally in line with, with the changes I want to make in my life. 
And what we know in terms of the research on depression is that probably the most effective treatment for depression is something called behavioral activation. It sounds so cold and boring, but what behavioral activation is doing small, tiny things that are brushing your teeth, getting up and taking a shower, making yourself an egg, going for a walk around the block. It's not a three-mile walk. It's just seeing, having some sunlight on your eyes and on your skin. And it's those tiny moves that you do, even though your head says, I cannot do this, even though your body says, this feels impossible, that ends up feeding back into your head and your body. That when you are waiting for your mind to get on board, you're going to be waiting for a long time if you're very depressed. And if you're waiting for your body to get on board because you're fatigued, you're going to wait for a very long time because fatigue begets fatigue. And it's actually activity that sometimes can shift that. And it's important. This is where self-compassion comes in because we don't want to say, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do it. Like we don't want to Nike this. It's It has more of a quality of that is the most compassionate thing you could do for yourself is to make a small move, one tiny move that's an active move towards the things that you're avoiding. Take whatever it is that you're avoiding and then cut it in half and cut it in half and cut it in quarters and cut it in eighths and then cut it in 25ths and do one of those 25ths. Mm-hmm. And, and that make it something that you actually is somewhat doable, even though your mind says you can't. And oftentimes I'll say things like, you can say, and you can say, when you were a kid, you played that song, that game, Simon Says. Did you ever play the game, Simon Says? Yep. So Simon Says, nod your head, nod your head. Mm-hmm. But wait, Simon didn't say. Ah. <laughs> so let me try again. Yep. Simon Says, nod your head. So you can do things that are against what your mind says. Even though your mind says, I can't, or even though your mind says, I'm, I'm too depressed for that. You can actually act in a way that's opposite to that. Your behavior is not tied to what your head says about you. Just in the way that Simon, if Simon doesn't say it, you can still, you you cannot do it. So there's an element of, especially with those intractable problems, like, like depression, like really severe depression or really severe isolation due to anxiety, that you need to make that tiny move and you're Mm -hmm. not going to feel better before you make it. So this is really good, really practical advice. And I think from a neuroscience perspective, it also helps build stronger neural connections by repeating small steps over and over. So something may actually become a habit that overrides old habits that didn't serve us that well. Uh, So as far as an act of being self-compassionate, that makes a lot of sense Now, how about the interior dialogue that goes on, especially when somebody may be severely depressed and they've hit rock bottom and so many different aspects in their lives, and they may be in a space where they blame themselves. First of all, blame themselves. You know that this is all their fault. Second of all, uh, whenever something else happens that's negative, it'll be like, of course that happens to me. So they're in that space, how can they internally, maybe the internal dialogue, or maybe there's certain things or techniques that could help shift that? How can they uh, cultivate self-compassion internally? Yes. The first thing is to notice that that thought, that self-critic that's in there is part of the constellation of depression Mm -hmm. and to label it as such. 
that there are networks in your brain that are firing, that are negative and that are berating you and that are blaming you and everything is your fault. And it's almost like you could be on the most beautiful vacation in Hawaii that you've ever been on, ever been on. And all you can see is the one cloud in the sky because you're, because that is the nature of depression. And so we first, just by saying, start by, by calling a spade, that's my depression. That's not me talking. That's my depression. My depression is skewing how I inter, and we know this the research that our, our, when you have depression, you actually skew the information that's coming at you. So if you can, you could give that a name. I like naming things. Apparently I like naming emotions. I don't, I also like naming our minds. That's my, that's my depression mind talking. And how helpful is it to you when you listen to that depression thought? Does your life get broader and more expansive or does your life get narrower and you feel worse when you believe that thought to be true? And you could call it your inner dictator. That's people have called it that. You can call it whatever you like. You can call it Susan. doesn't matter. You can call it your stepmother's name because that's maybe where you learned it from. Oftentimes these thoughts aren't even ours in the first place. They were somebody else's voice from our childhood or maybe there was something from our culture that we've adopted. And then there's also another voice in there, which is a voice that wants the best for you, a voice that actually is encouraging and kind and warm and says things like, I know this is really hard and I believe that you're going to be able to get through this and just take the next tiny move. And it could be the voice of your kindergarten teacher or your favorite coach or your best friend when you were in third grade, that when they saw you, they lit up and they believed in you that you also have the capacity to cultivate that voice. And you could give it a name too. If they call it your self-compassionate voice, you could call it Janet or Arthur or whatever. And you start to have discernment of which voice do you want to choose? Because ultimately, these are just voices in our head. And, and, and when you choose a more self-compassionate voice, what we know is that folks that self-criticize themselves actually tend to do more poorly on like their challenges when they make mis they make more mistakes they don't do as well and people that practice this listening to this self compassionate encouraging voice actually tend to do a little better they get up when they fall a little bit more easily they sustain their um, persistence a little bit longer they tend to be happier and have less anxiety and, and things like that cultivating the compassionate voice takes also some practice. And sometimes you need to borrow somebody else's for a while because you don't, you don't have it for yourself. You could, when I listen to the, when I go to the dentist, because I have dental, a little dental phobia, I, I listen to Tara Brock yes. and I need her in my ears during this time because I, I need her voice. So you could borrow somebody else's too, if you need it. I love that. And so how about when it's actually not ourselves, but some of us may experience uh, within our family circle of loved ones and friends, somebody who is going through that and can we best support someone we love who's going through that? That's of course a very complex question. And obviously it would be best if that individual uh, would also have professional support and help. But that aside, as a loved one, when you're witnessing somebody going through that, what is the best you can do to support? Yeah. The first thing, if you're there to support someone, and this is like what I have to do as a therapist, because I support people all day long, right? The first thing is to notice what's showing up for you in the presence of their suffering. Even before you're there to help them, notice what's showing up for you. Because what often shows up for us when our loved one or our friend is hurting is it's uncomfortable. And so we want to fix it. I want to get rid of your 
pain, your depression, because your depression makes me feel (laughs) bad. (laughs) And if you go in with that agenda of wanting to fix their pain, already from the start, it's not going to be effective because we've all felt like that before. We've all been experienced the the feeling of someone else trying to fix our pain. It's, ah, that means you can't sit with me. You can't tolerate me. I'm causing, my grief is making you sad and you can't handle my grief. So that, that's the first thing is just to check in with yourself. And, and if you are feeling that discomfort, practice some self-compassion for yourself. And this is hard. And the best way that you can actually help that person is not fixing their discomfort, practicing being with them, sitting with them, asking questions, staying open, staying curious, asking more follow-up questions, and then validating And the very simple validating statement that I've actually texted this to my husband and told him, this is what I need you to text me back. It's understandable that you feel this way. This is hard. And I'm here for you. If you text that to someone, it doesn't matter who it is. It's Berlin. They're like, yeah, okay. I feel validated. It's understandable that I'm having, I feel this way. You're recognizing that this is hard for me and you're not running you're here. And that being here for somebody can be things like, I'm here for you. Can I, you have a newborn. Can I help take, clean up the dishes or take the trash out? Or you're going through a divorce. Can I help you do some research around lawyers? Or you're super, super anxious about this event coming up. Can I do some practice with you? But we don't go there first. We start with, it's understandable that you feel this way. Tell me more about how you're feeling. What is it like for you? And then we practice and offer this validation of this is hard. And then we say, I'm here for you. And and what do you need from me? Is there anything you need from me? How can I help? Yeah. Emotions are really fascinating and the fuel of what makes us human. When I was looking into your work, I came across the concept of riding the waves of emotions. Can you maybe share some practical tips with us for how to actually ride the wave of very intense emotions effectively. Yeah, I I like the the concept of riding a wave and and maybe thinking about it riding on a surfboard. And in Santa Barbara, we, we have a lot of surfing here. And when you're riding a surfboard, even if you haven't surfed before, you probably have some intuition around this. The most important part is your footing and your foundation. So you need to get grounded on that board. If you get up on a board and you have bad footing, you're going to fall over. The first part of riding a wave of an emotion is what grounds you. And actually, sometimes you need to physically push your feet into the floor. Like this is intense. Pushing my feet into the floor. Can I feel my legs grounding me, my feet grounding me, connected to something bigger that's more stable right now than I am? And then the other part of riding riding a wave of being on a surfboard is you need to be able to move with the wave. If you're rigid and you're holding your breath and you're resisting this thing, you are going to fall over. So moving with the wave means, can I practice willingness with my hands, let go of my hands, let go of tension in my face, let go of tightness in my body and feel the wave lifting me up because it is like a wave in that emotions are changing constantly. They're going to increase, they're going to peak, they're going to decrease. And then the third aspect of it, so you're moving with the wave, you're noticing it, you're attuned to it. You're, it the third aspect is don't jump off when it gets intense. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> because what happens is we often get to that almost close to the peak, whether it's a wave, an emotion or an, a craving or an urge. And that's the part where our head gets in and says, oh, can't handle this. We think it's just going to keep on going up and up forever. And we jump. And the ways in which we jump are things like using substances. I feel the wave of anger. So I'm going to send that email right now, the angry email. That's jumping off. That's the impulsivity that can happen with an emotion that ends up leading to all of these other secondary problems. Because if you jump off, if you jump off a board and you're in the wrong part in the wave, if you do circle, you're going to get tumbled. It's better to wait to ride it out until further in, right? So don't jump. And every time you don't jump, every time you don't act impulsively, every time you don't use that substance or every time you don't run away from what you're feeling, you get more skillful. And you also get to recognize and have the experience of the wave coming back down, which gives you some confidence. Like, wow, it will come back down no matter how bad it gets. That storm never harms the sky. And you've developed that. Like I did it. I just rode that big wave and now I can ride it again. So the one aspect of healing or being able in a way that actually is helpful to us to deal with these things, emotions, issues we're facing is the self-work that we're doing. Another aspect is, and I'd like to hear your take on that as a psychologist, social connections. What role do they play in our emotional well-being and how can we cultivate and nurture meaningful relationships? Absolutely. Our social connections are so central to our well-being, also to our physical health, our longevity. I recently interviewed Robert Waldinger, who's the director of the Harvard Health Study that looks at things like your what your social fitness is at 50 uh, predicts your health at 80. So we know that our social networks influence our, really also influence our stress. And we know that stress is harmful to our body. When we feel connected, we are so much stronger in facing difficulty. And I just, my, my little, my 10 year old, his hamster died this week. And it was like a big deal. Three years of his life, three years of his 10 years he spent with this hamster. And one of the very first things that he wanted to do was tell one of his friends about it. And just telling his friend about this hamster helped him regulate his own grief around his hamster loss. We know that with our kids, but we also know that for ourselves, that when we have social connection, we can tolerate things like a pandemic or things like grief or things like a breakup of a relationship so much better. And at the same time, when we are struggling emotionally, oftentimes for many of us, we have a hard time reaching out to others and asking for help. For some people that feels like vulnerability, it feels like a weakness, maybe that wasn't modeled to them or was discouraged from them. If you need others, then that means you can't, you're not strong. And so we have lots of stories in our head about what it means to be socially connected. At the same time, if you start to practice it, you'll see the benefits of it pretty quickly. And for some people that just is starting with therapy, like seeing a therapist might be the one place where they can cry and get support, or they can say what they're really feeling and receive some support. And that can be a change for them that then hopefully then they can apply out in the world with other people. Absolutely. And I also think no matter what place you're at in your life, maybe you're somewhere where you have just don't have any social connections because life got so busy and 
work, uh, you may have your family, but no other connections outside of that. Uh, maybe you just have social anxiety. Uh, there's such fantastic um, possibilities to connect with others from groups online where you can show up anonymously or with your name, it's your choice, and connect with individuals who are dealing with similar things as you are. And just to be able to hear from others and then also communicate to others what you're going through can be so helpful. Just the feeling of being heard and being seen from my own experience, I've always been blessed with really great friends. Some of them are scattered all around the world due to the way I grew up in many different countries. But just recently this year with a dear friend of mine, we made the decision of, okay, we are going to create a women's circle. And we've been meeting bi-monthly. It's been so wonderful and cathartic for all of our lovely members to connect and to share and to hold space for each other. And even having this loose structure of how you may just want to meet once a month, but the, the simple act of getting together, there's also something I think that connects back to our ancestors where we were tribes, we supported each other, can be profoundly healing. And for some people that may feel like such a big stretch to be able to go online and find a group and share your feelings or find a group of women to be in a circle with, and that can be a goal. That could be something that you're aiming for. And maybe today the, the move is to be more engaged socially in the loose connections that you have. And there is some research on the benefits of these loose connections. Loose connections being when you go to the grocery store and you're interacting with the person in line. And can you, instead of going on your phone and looking down, look up and see that there's a person right there next to you and just check in. How's your day going? Or check in with the clerk. How, how's it going? I know. How's, what, what's it been like for you today? And those little tiny social interactions are really beneficial. They give you a little bit of social food. And, and as humans, we knew that we are such a, we're such a use social, pro-social species. Yes, we compete for resources but we also cannot survive without each other. So today you could start some, something small. And even if you have strong ties and still continue to build those loose social connections, they're actually more important than we think that we are. And where that showed up, I, I definitely think was like during a pandemic or during a natural disaster or during a time when your community has been impacted by something really challenging. You remember your loose, your, those loose social ties because all of a sudden, that person at the grocery store isn't really important to you. The person that gives you your chicken feed or your dog food, like they're there to help you out during those difficulties. So it strengthens right. you. Yes, that's a really good point, Diana. And I'm so glad you brought it up that you can start very small steps. Because as you rightfully pointed out, for some people, the thought of going online or creating a group may just be overwhelming. So these smaller steps are super important as well. Uh, you actually have a beautiful uh, deck out, the ACT deck, 52 ways to stay present and live your values using acceptance and commitment therapy. And in that deck, you, you offer practical exercises. I love these types of tools that you literally can hold in your hands and also in small bites. Learn from, could you share maybe one or two exercises uh, from that deck that listeners could try? Yeah, we created the deck exactly for that reason, because we wanted it to be something that you could just 
pull a card from and put it on your computer to remind you today, I'm going to practice this one little tiny tangible thing. Because oftentimes with our own like self-help and psychology, we take on way too much and then we forget it by midday, <laughs> what our goal is. So an example from that, the deck may be something as simple as remembering impermanence is this concept that everything changes. And whatever you're experiencing now is going to be different an hour from now. And when we remember impermanence, it, it offers us two things. If, it's, if you're experiencing something really painful, it's going to change. Good news. Remember to stay present in the things that you really enjoy and that you love. Savor them because they too will change. So just having that little card of remembering impermanence and, and put it on your computer will help you with that conflict with your coworker or the person that's smacking too much sitting next to you. And then it'll also remind you to put your phone down and look your kid in the eyes or look your partner in the eyes when they walk in the door because they too are not always going to be this way forever. We also have cards that are related to things like acceptance being able to accept a difficult emotion. Can you practice acceptance with your body? What, was it what would it look like with your hands and your face and your shoulders and your posture if you were to accept this moment as it is? And can you embody that, that posture of acceptance as you move into that difficult conversation with someone or as you get in the car to drive to the gym or whatever it is that you're feeling a barrier against? So these little tiny things, you could take that acceptance card and you put it right on your dashboard as you drive. And these are the um, ways in which I'm really passionate about bringing these skills from science that have decades of evidence behind them into people's daily lives. Because oftentimes they get stuck in ivory towers or they get stuck in some crazy treatment manual that's really hard to decipher, or they're stuck in a therapy room and not everyone wants to go to therapy. So my, my job is to help translate them and bring them to people. And, and bring them to where they need the most, which is in their lives, in their days. Wonderful. And something that I'm always curious to hear about when I'm talking to individuals such as yourself, as a being a psychologist, being a healer, what are some of the challenges you deal with and how do you manage the work-life balance and prevent burnout, physical or emotional? I do that on macro scale and micro scale. So let's, I'll start with I'll start with macro because people always want to hear what are the big things you do. <laughs> so macro is I I'm a big believer in taking retreats, mm -hmm. and I will take time off on a twice two three times a year. I will go on um, a retreat somewhere. I go um, to Plum Village Monastery where I do retreats there. I do retreats in Costa Rica. I lead people on retreats as well. But I need to do my own retreat to reset, restore, get my head back in a space where I can be offering what I offer. That's a macro thing. I also have another middle range where I will two days a week, midday, I have a commitment to a yoga class. No matter what, I will not book over that midday commitment. And I place it purposefully before, I, before some difficult clients that I have. I won't say what day they are because I don't want the clients to hear that because I, I know that I need to recharge and refocus and take care of myself before I go in and meet with a difficult client. I need to be regulated. We co-regulate each other. If my body is expressing ease and confidence and calm and slowness, my client will receive that and they will co-regulate that. We know that from polyvagal theory. Mm. On a micro level, micro I will 
I, I keep a 50 minute hour. I'm really stringent in my, I really try and hold that time. And in those 10 minutes between my 50 minutes and my next client, we're going to end this on the hour. I'm going to have those 10 minutes. What I do is I go out to my little space out here and my office is nestled in nature. And I'll look out at the horizon, which gives my eyes a rest, but also makes me feel a little bit connected, more connected, interconnected to something bigger than just me. We know that from neuroscience research, looking at the horizon. And then I'll look at a fractal in nature, which is a repeating pattern, something like a succulent or a, we don't have palm, fr- we don't have a fern fronds, but we have palm fronds here in Santa Barbara. Just looking at a repeating pattern from nature also um, produces alpha waves in the brain. It soothes your um, brain down a little bit. Our brains love nature. And then I'll take a little short little walk down to my garden or stretch or move my body. And we know the benefits of just little tiny movements in terms of our mental health. So doing that throughout my day, doing sort of the midweek kind of resets and then doing the bigger picture, big resets are very helpful for me um, because I love what I do. I feel what my clients feel. I actually see that as a strength. I practice compassion, but not over empathy. And I don't want to get hard and shut myself off, but I also need to learn how to take care of myself so that I can be present with my clients and their suffering. Beautiful, Diana. Thank you for sharing those practices. That's some really valuable input. And I will also try that. I've never focused on the fractals in nature. I would like to know from you, you have a lot of offerings out there. You offer workshops and courses, and maybe you can share some of that with us right now. Looking ahead, what projects or initiatives are you currently working on that you're particularly excited about? I have a lot of different things. I have a podcast, Your Life in Process, and I love my podcast. We actually just, I just introduced a new segment, which is Real Play. And in these Real Plays, I actually demonstrate therapeutic techniques so that people can do them in their own life on themselves. So that's been fun. In addition to interviewing experts and leaders, thought leaders and scientists and spiritual teachers, actually, on my podcast. I have a book coming out on self-compassion and ACT that will be a follow-up to my first book, which is the ACT Daily Journal. And I I like these sort of like hands-on, exercise-based, get it into your life type of books that you can start in the middle or you can start three quarters in. It doesn't really matter where you start, but there's a nugget in there of something you could try out in your life and you can write about it and practice it. And then I I always am doing talks and retreats and things like that that I work with organizations and I work a lot with therapists and I go on retreat every year, I bring a group to Costa Rica, which is quite divine. So that's always something that I look forward to, but yeah, lots of things coming down, coming out in the future. Wonderful. And people would like to connect with you or learn more about you and your offerings. How can they, where can they do that, Diana? Just at my website at drdianahill.com. It's a great place to connect with me and or on Instagram. I teach a lot there too. So at Dr. Diana Hill as well. Great. And I'll make sure to also put that in the show notes. Diana, thank you so much for this really insightful and inspiring conversation. Learned a lot. I can apply to my own life. And yeah, thank you for everything you're doing, healing one person at a time, which is microcosm and which reflects out into the macrocosm. As we all know, it's been really wonderful to connect with you. Thank you for this opportunity. I love the questions that you asked and how thoughtful 
they were. And I really appreciate just you as a human, your presence um, was really wonderful to be with as well. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanize.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.